Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. Three, two, one. Never has there been a better time to be alive in human history. If you're not feeling it, you must discover why. Join Matthew Bolton in developing and applying a framework of objective optimism toward a flourishing life of meaning, health, and happiness. Here's your host, Matthew Bolton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mr. Brightside. I'm Matthew Bolton. This is the first release after announcing the new bi-weekly schedule, and it looks like everyone has survived the off week. Uh, I do suggest, if you're looking for something to charge you every other week, to look through the backlog of episodes and catch up on some titles that appeal to you. This show is not commentary that expires as current events do, but evergreen content, as one of my friends kindly put it to me recently, uh, that you can listen to at any time. Our show today, however, is sure to give you lots to chew on, as I've started up again with some longer-form interviews. Today's guest is Tim Shermack, and let me tell you, I barely got to three of the questions that I had prepared for him, as I just teed him up on the first one, and he went off like he was shot from a cannon. This guy is prolific, and not only in speech, but in achievement. He's only 29 years old, but is already the founder and CEO of a successful real estate marketing firm, besides being an author, speaker, and many other things. And in this interview... I was blown away by Tim's startup story, which included him dropping out of university, how that was more than unpopular with his devastated parents, how he dealt with the pressure to make good of himself due to that, all in the face of rejection after rejection leading up to his first breakthrough. Of course, all filled in with fascinating details that will inspire young people and anyone else who's stressed about going against the mainstream around them and all without any real clue or master plan to guide them, mind you. We then head into a conversation on capitalism, and I think Tim has a refreshingly clear way of framing it in an optimistic way that makes it difficult to regard it as anything other than an unequivocal good. You know, maybe this guy knows something about messaging or something like that. In any case, he emphasizes countering emotional stories that malign capitalism with emotional stories that champion it and that bypass logic to connect with hearts on a deeper level, opening minds to hear the logical case on top, which he claims is uncontroversial. You'll hear why he thinks that profit is noble and good, as it's all about leaving the world better than you found it. In asking him about his trip across the U.S. several months ago, Tim was able to share an inspiring image of the U.S. as a vast country rich in cultural diversity, and how people might change how they view politics if they gave themselves the invaluable experience of seeing diverse places and people within their own country. As politics is just downstream from culture, the more one understands diverse cultures, the more one might appreciate diverse political viewpoints. And guys, I really have only given you a light surface summary here. Tim was rife with examples, anecdotes, and clarifying explanations. And I'm sure you'll learn and just enjoy yourself as much as I did. So let's get on with it then. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our interview. I'm joined by Tim Chermack. Tim is a marketing consultant, author, and speaker to small business owners and entrepreneurs. More specifically, he is the founder and CEO of Platform Marketing, the author of High Hanging Fruit and an upcoming book that uh, we, you know, I don't know what we'll, if we'll get any details out of that, and an unofficial spokesperson for Chipotle, as you can see, Chipotle Mexican <laughs> Grill. Um, he's a guy I've wanted to have on ever since I first started doing a podcast, and now he's here. So thanks very much, Tim, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Right on. So uh, just right off with the... Uh, marketing in general and platform more specifically. What is platform marketing? Uh, how and why did you start that company? Yeah, we're really we're really just a, a marketing agency that specializes in working with real estate agents. 
And so it wasn't part of any master plan um, that I wanted to, you know, my whole life I planned to start an advertising agency that works with realtors, yeah, right? right. Uh, one thing led to another early on in my career. I was uh, college age, um, attending school, and I was just one of those kids that very stereotypically like had this had this moment where I realized kind of in my junior slash senior year that like, what am I doing? Like I was majoring at the time in finance and I just had this moment where uh, I realized I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like I don't want to go get an internship at some investment bank in New York City and be staring down spreadsheets for the rest of my life. Cause the truth is I suck at accounting. I suck at finance. I suck at anything quantitative like that. That's not the way my mind naturally works. I'm definitely more of a creative ideas person. I don't like mathematical formulas. That's just not the way that I, that my mind perceives the world. And yet that's what I was majoring in because I had gone on Google, you know, like my freshman year and kind of just went on, you know, uh, I went on Google and just typed in, who makes the most money out of college? And it was like people who major in finance and work for investment banks. And it was like, problem solved. I'll, okay. I'll do that. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I had this moment where like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And so I dropped out. And what I realized is I do like marketing. I like advertising. I like persuading people. I've always been fascinated with what it takes, you know, at the subtle psychological levels to convince someone of something I believe Um, You know, when I was growing up in church, I was always very passionate about like inviting my friends to church and youth group and things like that. And it was almost more the persuasion game of getting them to come, you know, that was that was fun for me. And so when I went to college, even at first, I was actually majoring to be a pastor. And I was very interested in philosophy and theology and all those things, too. So I don't mean to imply that I didn't care about those. I absolutely did. But a huge part of why I wanted to be a pastor was I wanted to start a church and I wanted to start a big church. I wanted to start something from scratch that would attract hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands of people. And that to me was just as interesting as like being a pastor. And so anyways, eventually I realized, okay, as I learned more about myself, you know, I just got older and experienced more of the world. I realized maybe I don't want to be a pastor because what I specifically like is just marketing and persuasion. And so when I dropped out, I had learned enough about myself, you know, just classic Socrates, know thyself, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of the oldest self-help tips in the world and also one of the rarest to actually get implemented. Uh, And I decided to uh, start a marketing agency. And when you hear me say, I decided to start a marketing agency, you know, you might be thinking, oh, cool. So did you rent office space? Did you go get business cards? Did you start a website? Did you have a cool logo and a brand? It's like, no, for me, dropping out of college to start a marketing agency meant, oh, I'm dropping out of college and now I need to figure out how to make money, right? I didn't really plan that far ahead. So often dropping out of school sounds like this noble thing because you read stories about like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook or <laughs> jobs and Apple and all these people who dropped out became billionaires eventually. It's like, no, I dropped out just because I realized I hated it. But I also knew, okay, I have to make money somehow because my parents were incredibly angry that I dropped out. I was always like a straight A student. I was a excellent child in high school. I didn't have a rebellious streak or anything. So how how did you deal with that aspect of it? If you excuse me. Yeah. 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 My, my parents were like devastated when I dropped out because um, I'd always been very persuasive. I said, I love persuasion. And so they kind of were figuring like, well, he'll go to law school. And he'll end up being a lawyer and he'll be very well, you know, with very well-respected profession and all that. Yeah, right. And so they were just devastated when I dropped out. They're like, what are you thinking? You're way too smart 
to drop out. Why don't you just finish? You only have a year left, you know, just like mm-hmm. classic sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. And the inverse of that is like, well, I only have a year left. I can always go back and finish, you know, but right now I just can't do this anymore. It's like crushing my soul to study for multiple choice tests of facts I'll never need to know. And I was just feeling like I, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't keep regurgitating and typing papers of things I don't believe in classes I know that are useless that I'll never use again. Um, I just need to get out. I, I need to get out into the real world. That was really the feeling I had. And then maybe I'll have really hard times in the real world for a year or two, and then I'll learn the value of a college degree. And then maybe I'll go back because I'll realize how valuable college was. Right. Mm-hmm. But I need maybe. to get out in the real world and just get out of the classroom essentially. Okay. And so I got out. And when I say I was starting a marketing agency, yeah, this, this had a lot of, uh, personal, personal, not, not, not meaning, but there was a lot of personal motivation to me to make, to find a way to make it work. Because as yep. I said, my parents were devastated when I dropped out. My, my, my dad didn't go to college. He actually dropped out of high school. Uh, and he was a self-made millionaire. So he was one of those guys who born in the 1940s, dropped out of high school, just started a bunch of businesses, never got a college degree, but eventually worked his way up with random American small businesses and became a small town millionaire through just, he owned like an, he owned like an RV dealership. He started a staffing service back in the 1980s when that was like a brand new business model, the idea of a staffing service. Um, And now that's, that's a little, that's amazing. And first of all, but now did it not occur to him like that you dropping out is a good thing in that way? How, how was he so focused on the law for you and and the career and all that in the the school? So this is, this is what's so interesting about higher education. I think in America, in America today is that it's really a social class signaling system. Like you don't get the degree because it's going to make you smarter and that'll help you get a job. It's really like you get the degree because it signals that you're now officially part of the upper middle class. That's really honestly what it is because I know this because if you went to college and you attended all of the classes and learned all of the information, but just never bothered to show up to any of the exams. And so therefore you weren't technically passing any of the classes, but you were Mm -hmm. there for everything and you actually learned everything. Mm -hmm. And then you went out and got a job and actually made a lot of money. If you can't say, for example, that, Hey, I graduated from the university of Michigan or I graduated from Vanderbilt or I graduated from USC or I you know, graduated from Michigan State, whatever. No one cares because it's like having the degree, right? Being able to wear that sweatshirt for the rest of your life and say, I'm, you know, I'm part of the alumni from the University of Minnesota or, you know, insert name of school, UT, Texas and Austin, whatever, right? And so it really is a social class signaler that you have a college degree. So my dad was one of those classic examples of a self-made entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he was broke and in his 30s and living in a trailer park, you know, at one point without a high school degree. And now he's a multimillionaire because of hard work and small business. And so it was always his kind of it was his socioeconomic dream Mm -hmm. that he would be successful enough and he would make enough money so that his kids could go to college. Yeah. And so it was devastating for him when I dropped out because it's like he was like, I worked so hard my whole life to give you the opportunities I never had. I was living in a trailer park, you know, in my thirties, high school dropout. And I worked so hard to save up so much money to put you through, you know, school and you drop out kind of like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know? And so it was very emotional. Like, I'm not just saying they were mildly upset. Like they were extremely angry. 
Okay. Uh, you know, my mom, my mom did have a college degree. She went to the university of Minnesota and actually I think uh, has an education degree to be like an elementary education teacher. But again, like when my dad started the business, she left that career, taught herself accounting. She doesn't have any formal education accounting and she became the accountant for all those businesses. And to this day, my mom is actually a full-time accountant at the Midwest right. technology campus in Minnesota, even though she doesn't have any accounting degree. So she's just another example of someone who created a, a professional white collar, good paying upper middle class career with absolutely zero formal training. Cause and yet it's an still education. ingrained, right? And yeah, it's yeah, still exactly. there. Like in spite of all that, they still feel like, look, I want my son to have that signal. That's amazing. Yep. So when I dropped out, they were, they were devastated, especially my dad. Yeah. And uh, so I had that extra motivation of like, I have got to make this work. I was not one of those kids who was dropping out because college was too hard. It's, it's not like I couldn't handle it, right? I actually started writing my first book in college because I realized like, oh, writing a five-page paper isn't that hard. And then you start getting classes where they assign 10-page papers. And I realized like, oh, well, a lot of the books I'm reading are like 200 pages long. If I just type 20 of these, I could be an author while I'm in college. I actually started working on my first book while I was in college because it occurred to me that writing one is not as hard as people make it sound. Okay, um, And so... I was in no way, I'm not saying this would be a total narcissist, but I was in no way dropping out because I couldn't handle college. I had straight A's, you know, it was, it was enjoyable, but I just couldn't, I couldn't reconcile the fact that like, I felt I was actually, my potential was being held hostage by college. Okay. Like I could have been doing so much more. And even at age 20, 21, you know, I would (laughs) be interfacing with some of my professors or just adults I see in real life, you know. And they tell me I can't do this or it's like, well, I'm smarter than you. <laughs> and so okay, I want to yeah. like, this sounds totally narcissistic, but I, I'm saying this for all the people that are probably listening to your podcast. If there's a 19 year old or a 20 year old or a 21 year old listening to this right now, and you've ever had that thought, like, why do I have to navigate so much bullshit from adults who aren't any smarter than I am? And you think like you're being gaslighted, essentially your whole adolescence. I'm just telling you, you are not wrong. No, Many adults are not are not any smarter than you are. They might be 20 years older than you, but they don't actually have 20 years of additional experience. They have one year of extra experience repeated 20 times, and that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I, I felt I that way. That. Yeah, I felt that way, and that's why I had to get out of college. I was like, okay, I could be doing so much more if I didn't have to spend eight hours a day reading textbooks of just you know empty theories. Right. Mm-hmm. So I dropped out. I was determined to launch a marketing agency and I really had to make this work because it would devastate my parents if it didn't work. Or at least if I didn't like seriously make an attempt to make it work, if it, if it looked like I was dropping out to be lazy. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so uh, I started going door to door in my hometown, mm-hmm. uh, walking into small businesses unannounced. And uh, I had read a bunch of marketing books. So I'd gone on Amazon. And I'd bought a bunch of marketing books because this is one this is one area I was very blessed. I found out when I was in college age that my dad had actually started a savings account for me that was apparently supposed to be for college. And he had done it like shortly after I was born or something like that and stuck a couple thousand dollars in there and forgot about it. And so one time I went to the bank and I was whatever, 18, 19, something like that. And I asked, I was like depositing some sort of check and they're like, what what checking account would you like to put it in? And I was like, uh, my checking account. <laughs> Cause I was like, I only have one, you know? And they're like, Oh no, sir. You have, you have two checking accounts here. And I was like, I don't think so. And they're like, yes, you do. And I was like, Oh, what's the balance? And there was like 
you know, I can't remember if it was $5,000 or $3,000 or something like that. Like it wasn't 1,000, but it wasn't 10,000. I think it was three or four, maybe $5,000, something Mm -hmm. around there. And I was like blown away. I was like, what is this? And they're like, oh, it looks like it was opened by Aleth Shermack, which is my father. Yeah. And it was open like a long, long time ago. So I like called him up and I was like, hey, what is this? Like it, my name's on it and there's all this money in it. Like I was not aware of this. And he had he actually had no idea. He's like, I literally don't know. And so I got in touch with my mom and she was able to remember, oh, yeah, we set that up a long time ago. That was supposed to be kind of a college savings fund. And I guess we honestly just forgot about it. And so it had been compounding with a couple interest, you know, points a year for the last, whatever, 18 years. And so it had, you know, at least a couple thousand dollars in there. And it was technically uh, psychologically earmarked for being for like education. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just asked my parents like, well, being I don't really need this for college because fortunately, you know, my parents were in a financial situation where they could pay for my college. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really need that money anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, can I just use this for buying books? if I promise you that I'll only use this to go on Amazon and buy books, can I just use this as kind of like my self-education fund? Like whenever I want to buy a book, I can get a debit card linked to this account. Right. And I'll use that debit card to buy books from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever. Mm -hmm. And my parents thought that that was a terrific idea. And so I basically had this head start in college where I essentially had what to me at the time seemed like an unlimited sum of money, you know, whatever it was, $3,000. To, to well, buy to buy books with well for books it and seems so, unlimited yeah <laughs> yeah I mean and you you uh, quickly realize too when you're not buying like two hundred dollar college textbooks you can get used books on Amazon for like eight bucks you know so even with a hundred dollars I could go get 10 12 books of like actual good marketing books written by experienced authors you know mm-hmm. not just college professors spouting theory but like you know actual marketing books. And so that helped me start building this library that now is actually thousands of books. And I'm 29 years old and I have a library that's um, taking up. I'm actually, I had to, I had to buy a condo a mile away from my house because there was not room in my house to house my library. Okay. That's that's how many books I have now. Yeah. And that, that, that started because my parents gave me this couple thousand dollars at a young age that encouraged me to buy books and read. And so for them, I'm completely obviously grateful and blessed to have been uh, in that, in that situation. But I'll also give myself some credit that a lot of kids would have, you know, gotten that 2000 bucks or 3000 bucks, whatever it was. And they would have been like, Oh sweet. I'm going to go buy a plasma TV and an Xbox, Mm -hmm. you know, but even at that time I was ambitious enough and forward thinking enough to, you know, think I'm going to, I'm going to invest this in books. And so I went and I bought a ton of marketing books and sales books and psychology books, like psychology as it relates to marketing and copywriting. And uh, I basically gave myself a immersive Mm self-education in becoming a modern marketer. Um, And I also read some old books by like, you know, uh, David Ogilvy, uh, Confessions of an Advertising Man, some older books, um, by Claude Hopkins, scientific advertising books that were 50 years old, 75 years old. So I could kind of learn, you know, how marketing had evolved over the last century. And so at a very young age, so I'm like right now, you know, I think at that, at that time I was 20, 21 ish when I dropped out, something like that. Um, I was highly educated on both the current marketing methods and the history of marketing, honestly, probably way more so than anyone who actually has a four degree in advertising, a four year degree in advertising. I would Um, think you had to be. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was reading a lot and I used some of that money to go to conferences because I got permission 
from my parents, like, Hey, if I find a great marketing conference that I could attend and it'll cost 500 bucks to go, can I use this to buy my ticket to a marketing conference? And they agreed as long as it was for educational purposes that I could go. Um, and so I, I, I gave myself a marketing education. So I started going. Is it acceptable to go to Mickey D's just for a drink? <laughs> of course it is. But good luck leaving with just a drink. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. And right now, a small Minute Maid slushie is just $1.59. So all you have to do is choose a flavor, like the tropical mango or strawberry watermelon, and enjoy like it's meant to be enjoyed. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mama is treating me to breakfast. Yep, let me see your phone. Huh? Look here. I download this McDonald's app because when you buy any bagel sandwich like the steak, egg, and cheese bagel, you get one free. Wait, you just bought that on my phone. That's right. Now that you got McDonald's money, you could treat mama. <laughs> okay, ma. You got it. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Valid through 10 22 at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. App download and registration required. In these local businesses. Yeah, yeah. This, this whole this marketing, this obsession with it was it is that about okay? This is it's about persuading people and about persuasion. So marketing is that's what marketing is to me, and that's why you focused on that because you just decided all of a sudden it was marketing books and marketing history and marketing conferences. How did you develop that passion for that particularly? Maybe my, maybe my, my, I think my whole life I was always just interested in persuading people and selling. I mean, I was one of those kids who like, I started a baseball card collection when I was young and it wasn't, but a couple months before I was repackaging the cards I had and I was selling them to the neighborhood kids as card packs. So I started my own card store because I realized like, Oh, I mean, this is when I'm like, you know, seven years old, eight years old, whatever Mm -hmm. I'm buying packs of cards from going to Walmart or target with my allowance money. And then I'd get a bunch of cards and I'd realize like, oh, well, all they're doing is they're packaging typically eight to 10 cards. You sell it. And part of the novelty of buying a card pack is what's going to be inside. And so I got all the neighborhood Mm -hmm. kids to start buying packs of cards for me where I would literally like go to my parents' printer, you know, in the home den. And I'd take just a standard piece of eight and a half by 11 printer paper. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd wrap up a bunch of cards. And even I knew I can't rip off my customers if I put a bunch of crappy cards with terrible players in there, I might make one sale, but then they'll never become a repeat customer. Every once in a while, I have to actually put a good player in there so they keep buying from me, right? And so I had this business going until eventually the um, parents of some of the kids in the neighborhood got mad and shut me down and called my parents because they said, oh, my kid's spending all of his money at your kid's card store. And I didn't realize I'd done anything wrong, right? But eventually... I had a, you know, I did that. I had a, a the regulators got you. business. Yeah, exactly. Right. First, first ever experience uh, with bureaucracy and government, right? Like yeah. a little HOA, but <laughs> I had a, I had a golf ball sales business where I would go to the local golf course and I'd yeah. find all the balls that had been hit into the water and I'd fish them out and I'd clean them and I'd sell them. And I set up a little like, you know, table like a little folding table on one of the greens and i'd sell the golf balls to golfers going by and obviously i'm whatever at that point eight nine years old and so they're probably buying just because they think it's cute but like i remember my dad told me once hey this is a titleist pro v1 and i don't know anything about golf but apparently a pro v1 is a very nice premium golf ball and brand new they can even sell for whatever four or five dollars a golf ball Mm -hmm. and so he's like you should sell this one for five dollars it's in mint condition 
and even he knew, I mean, in hindsight, he was, he was, he was kind of a dick for doing this to me, but <laughs> even he knew that's really expensive for a used golf ball, $5. But I think he was trying to test me as like, can he handle like the abuse that some golfers will keep him out of like nine years old? Can he handle the price objections of them saying that's way overpriced? I think he just wanted to see how I would react. And so a bunch of golfers were like $5, no way. And they'd like laugh at me for asking $5 for one used golf ball. But eventually some guy came by and bought it. Okay. And that taught me like, oh, you know, it's okay to have premium price. At a young age, I'm learning this, right? It's okay to have premium price products. Even if nine people in a row say no, as long as one person says yes, you just made a lot of money by selling that one golf ball for $5 and all the other ones are like 50 cents, right? Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot of business lessons at a young age. I had, you know, whenever my parents would have garage sales, I would have a little folding chair out front in the driveway and my mom would bake cookies and she'd let me sell the cookies for like, you know, 25 cents a piece and I could keep all the profit and she didn't make me pay her back for the cost of the ingredients or anything. Cause I'm obviously, girl. you know, uh-huh. seven years old or whatever. So I don't have any cost of goods to worry about anything like that. And I remember one day, I don't know how I remember this, but I think, I think I made $11 selling cookies and that was like a, a small fortune for, That's you know, huge. kindergartner, or first grade, whatever it was. And I just felt like I had all the money in the world. And that feeling that that emotional high you get of someone paying you money for something that you made for them, that you're selling, that you persuaded them that what I have to sell you is more valuable than the money that I'm asking for. That always thrilled me, I guess. Sure. Like even at a young age, it gave me this emotional high. And, you know, anytime we did fundraisers as a kid, um, you know, for school stuff, if we had to raise money for a sports team or raise money for the school music program, band, whatever, you know, you're going selling tubs of cookie dough or you're selling magazines door to door to raise money for stuff, right? I was always like the leading salesperson in my grade and I won all the awards because I would just blow everyone out of the water yeah. because I liked it. And so in hindsight, it should have been obvious that I could have a career in marketing or, you know, advertising, but it took me a couple of years and, you know, as an adult to realize like, this is actually what I should be doing. And so uh, anyways, to bring all that full circle, I dropped out and I'm going door to door to local businesses in my hometown. Cause I'm thinking I've got to make this work. I've got to prove to my parents and everyone else who thinks I'm an idiot for dropping out of school that I actually made the right decision. Cause I had tons of people tell me, dude, what are you doing? Like, I mean, I gave, I, I wasn't the valedictorian in my high school. I forget I forget who was, but I gave one of the speeches at okay. like my high school graduation because they asked me to give a talk. And so like everyone in my, you know, uh, my my hometown and my you know family, extended family, looked at me as being like an overachiever. Like this, like if, if there's anyone in the family who's going to get like a PhD, it's going to be him. Okay, right. And so that's why when I dropped out, it was like, what happened? Did he? fall into drug use or you know like they're mm-hmm. they're like what what happened tim dropped out you know yeah and so i've got to make this work right i've got to make mm-hmm. this work and so i go into local businesses and here's my pitch i would you know walk up to the front desk or who you know whoever's there and I, i'm going by the way it's like any local business i could think of like uh local insurance agencies real estate brokers used car dealerships gyms local health stores literally i went to a gas station convenience store um uh, I, you know, uh, did some marketing work for my parents' staffing service, eventually got them to hire me on a sympathy deal to help them. Um, any, any type of small business I thought might entertain my ideas, a local pizza place, uh, 
coffee shops. I mean, any any type of business, right? And uh, there's a local attorney, um, and everyone said no right away. I think I went to a dozen where it's no, 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 no. You know, 12 times I got no's. Some of them have invited me back even for second meetings. They'd be like, oh, yeah, well, come back again. I'd like to hear a little bit more. I, you know, I, I'd love to hear you go into more detail on some of those ideas you shared with us. But what I would do going in for the first time is I would just say, hey, I have a couple marketing ideas that I'd like to share with the owner for how I think I could help your business. Is there a time I can swing by and share those marketing ideas? Okay. And that's all I would ask because I wasn't trying to pitch them right there on the spot. I was just trying to basically win a meeting in the first place. And so often they'd say yes, because who's going to say no if you're offering free marketing ideas? And I'd sit down and I basically have already typed out a marketing plan ahead of time because I knew that one thing that was working against me was I'm young, I'm inexperienced, you know, I'm like 21 years old. So I have to basically overcompensate for that. I have to show up super prepared, super professional because I'm well aware that my age is working against me. And so I'd show up with this like pretty detailed, well-written marketing plan for each of these businesses that I've thought out ahead of time of like, if they hire me, here's what I will do. And here's so I can help them grow. And it was pretty detailed. It was like multi-channels. Like, here's what I'm going to do with direct mail. Here's what I'm going to do with, you know, online ads. Here's what we'll do to start building a database. Here's how I think we can get more referrals. Here's how we can do upsells with some of your products. So your existing customers, you can make more money off of. I mean, like looking back, it's like, that's actually pretty impressive for like a 20 year old or 21 year old that I was thinking at that level with a lot of these businesses. And yet none of them hired me. Right. And I, I, I learned something in doing that. It's that how good you are at something sometimes doesn't matter as much as how well known you are for being good at something. Sure. And that's the opposite of what you're taught in school In school you're implicitly taught for 12 years, or if you go to college, you know, like 16 years, you're taught that like your success in life and how much money you make in life is just going to be a function of how good you are, you know, as judged by like, what, what grade did you get? And what bridges that to him? Is that marketing that bridges that then? If yeah, I'm really good at something like that. It's, it's marketing and self-promotion and personal branding because I, I could have been a genius at marketing. And today I think I'm quite, quite smart at marketing, Mm -hmm. but if no one knows that it doesn't matter. Right. Right. And so college and, you know, the whole K through 12 school system is, you know, it, it, it has this premise that like, Oh no, you're objectively good at math or you're objectively good at writing. So therefore opportunities will just be served up to you. It's like, that's not how the real world works. There's a difference between being good at something and being known for being good at something. And with very, very, very few exceptions, like the education system does not teach you anything about how to become known for being good at something. And so I learned that kind of the hard way by going to all these businesses thinking, man, like these marketing plans that I've developed for them could be helping them so much. And they all said no to me. Some of them gave me multiple meetings, maybe out of sympathy. I don't know, but still none of them hired me. And eventually I realized like, oh, they're not taking me seriously enough. So I remember I went uh, to the mall and I bought a suit and I went to Office Max and I was like, you know what I need? I need a briefcase. If I walk into one of these meetings with a briefcase, then they'll fucking take me seriously, right? And so I go and I literally bought like the cheapest briefcase, fake leather. It was like $39.99, you know, and I had nothing in it. If you opened it up, there was literally not anything in it. You know, hers like still- Kramer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was probably like the manufacturer's warranty card was still in there if I, were, if I ever would have opened it up to prove I've never even opened it, right? But yeah. like nothing is in there. Yeah. 
And I walked in with briefcase. I'm like, oh, this is going to work to a real estate meeting. I remember Doug Fenstra mm-hmm. and Doug Fenstra's office. He had the whole corner suite of this bank and all the glass, all the walls were like glass panels. It was just this like, you know, I was like, oh, if I can get this guy as a client, this, this will be amazing. I'll just feel important basically. And if I tell my yeah. parents that Doug Fenstra hired me for marketing, this is a pretty well-known real estate broker in the area. Yeah. I'll have their respect. And he didn't hire me. And so the briefcase did not work. And so eventually what happened um, to answer your question uh, about how did I start platform marketing is a realtor found out that I had some marketing ideas. Maybe she had had some friends who said, hey, this kid's going around pitching marketing ideas to anyone who will listen. And she's like, hey, why don't you come talk to me? You know, uh, and I was like, okay. But I kind of wasn't really excited about it because I'd already been turned down by multiple real estate offices. By this point, I had been turned down by financial advisors, insurance agents. A car dealership literally yelled at me to get out of his office once because I just was so persistent. He's like, get out. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, whatever, this agent's not going to hire me. I was kind of just like, I guess was, maybe I'm going to have to go back to college, right? And she was willing to give me a shot, but the catch was that like she had no money. So she's like, I want to be clear with you. I love your marketing plan. I think some of these ideas could work and I see value in what you're doing. And so that was kind of a shot of confidence that this agent like thought that there was some merit to some of my ideas. Mm-hmm. But then she says, I have no money. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, how much money would we add for advertising? She's like, none. And I was like, okay, well, how will we do this? And she's like, well, I have no money to pay you. I'm not, you know, I'm not being figurative here. I literally do not have money to pay you. Mm-hmm. I'm behind on my own house payments. I have nothing to lose here. Like I'm at the point where if I don't bring some business in, like the bank could start foreclosure process on my own house. So her business is not doing well. Right. Um, And she's like, if you can somehow get me business, I'll just give you 25% of everything I make rather than paying you a fee or whatever. She's like, I'll just essentially give you 25% ownership in my business. Wow. And so I was like, okay, well I, you know, I was thinking like, I just need a case study. That's all I'm thinking at this point It's at this young age, I need some successful case study. So other business owners in the future will take me seriously. Mm-hmm. So even if this isn't an ideal setup where she has no money to pay me, I just need some sort of example where I helped a business grow so that other yeah. businesses in the future might give me a shot. And so, I mean, all I had was a video camera, you know, she didn't have any money for ads. Mm-hmm. So I just started filming some videos with her and this was when like YouTube was starting to become a thing. And so we put, some homes for sale and some video tours. And we filmed some like neighborhood videos of like, here's five things you need to know about this neighborhood versus that neighborhood. And I just applied everything I'd been learning about this, you know, uh, content marketing, right? We started putting videos on YouTube and I helped her write some free reports that we would use these free reports where people could request a free report. And in exchange for that, obviously they'd have to enter their contact information. And then that's how we would generate a lead. And eventually this realtor's business really blew up. I even helped her write a book. We sat down over one winter and wrote an entire book together, kind of like 200 pages, a book. Mm-hmm. And we self-published a book about the real estate market in her local area. And then we would give that book away for free. Okay. And obviously to get the book, you'd have to sign up and give us all your contact information. So she would know where to ship your free copy of the book. Mm-hmm. And obviously anyone requesting that book must have been a real estate lead who was thinking about buying or selling a house sooner or else why in the hell would you request that book? It'd be a really boring book, reading a okay. book about your local real estate market unless you were planning on buying or selling a house soon, mm-hmm. right? So it's yeah. kind of the perfect lead generation magnet. 
and her business blew up. Eventually it got to the point where, you know, she's making $200,000 a year in, in income. And keep in mind, I own a quarter of her business. I was keeping that in mind. (laughs) Yeah. And so this, like, I'm at a very young age, like, you know, making some pretty serious money. Mm -hmm. And well, at least I thought was pretty serious money for being that young. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just realized like, wait, again, this is not part of any master plan in case I haven't made that abundantly clear. Like I did not set out, like I'm going to start a real estate marketing business. Like I just realized like, wait, I made this marketing plan for her and she's in this like small town in central Minnesota, total County only has 40,000 people. So it's not some big city. And I just like blew up her business with a couple of these marketing ideas. And this is still my first ever shot at this. Like I haven't tested other ideas. This is just like me kind of winging it. And I blew up this lady's business and now she's super successful, really happy, like eternally grateful for me. Yep. I could essentially copy and paste this to other realtors across the country because they're all in different markets. They're not competition to each other. And as long as I only work with one realtor per city, I could just keep implementing the same marketing plan for other realtors, mm-hmm. right? And so the 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 uh, stroke of genius was that rather than selling the marketing plan as like a lump sum, like, hey, I'll sell you this marketing strategy and everything you need to do for $10,000 or something like that, we, okay. went, we went with the business model of an agency where you'd pay us a monthly fee for us to manage everything for you. So that way it created recurring revenue. So every time we picked up a new client, it was just adding to the monthly recurring revenue. And obviously, as long as we were helping those realtors make more money every month than they were paying us, they were happy to keep paying us because if, you know, our our fee every month is $1,600. If we're helping them make $10,000 every month because of that $1,600 they pay us, that's a pretty good trade for them. Mm-hmm. And so now we have like 150 clients across the country that are all paying us $1,600 a month. And it still all goes back to that one marketing plan. Essentially, I made uh, for Debbie Kaler back in Minnesota. She was the first realtor. So that's essentially how we started platform marketing is it just one thing led to another. And I kept pursuing that entrepreneurial dream of um, just wanting to work for myself and wanting to own my own business and wanting to be involved in marketing. And again, it's not part of any... Uh, it's not part of any master plan or anything like that, but mm-hmm. that's how we build platform marketing. And today we have, uh, a, I think, a dozen employees, maybe no, maybe thirteen employees, um, here here in the United States. And we also have, I think, eight employees uh, overseas uh, who help us with a lot of the back end work and setting up ads and editing some of the videos and things like that. So, right. uh, you know, we have about 20, 20 total employees and revenue is a couple million bucks a year. And um, yeah, it's a that very is, profitable high margin business. And I actually love my life. It's, it's amazing. I love to hear Tim that congratulations. And it's outstanding. I love to hear all that. Uh, now that was the first question. We have about 50 more, but I think you've covered all of them <laughs> in all that. Um, but, but you did mention your team and I did have something on that. Um, you know, how many people and all that you mentioned about 20, what kind of makeup do you think is important in a marketing team? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's going to be be completely dependent on what type of marketing you're doing for what type of clients. Like, obviously, if you're a graphic design firm, you're going to need a bunch of graphic designers. Duh. Um, If you're if you're a digital marketing firm, you're going to need people who understand the ins and outs of, you know, Facebook ads, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, whatever becomes popular next, whether that's Parler, MeWe, whatever. Um, And so for us, 
what we specialize in for most of our clients is running ads in the Facebook ecosystem. So that's, uh, you know, Facebook ads, Instagram, some clients are doing YouTube ads. We've got a couple do ads on LinkedIn, um, but we also do their email marketing. So we're sending out the follow-up emails and text messages uh, when they have, you know, leads that opt in, we will queue up all those follow-up sequences. We also edit all of their videos. And so um, anytime they have a listing and they film a video, like they send it to us, we edit all their videos. So we have to have video editors on staff. Um, but yeah, every mark, I mean, honestly, every marketing company is going to be completely different based off of what type of work you want to do for clients. But the, the bulk of the employees we have weren't doing this before they came to work with us. Yeah. So we trained them on everything that they know. So it's not like we're only looking for people who have a marketing degree or something because marketing changes so quickly that going to school for it is a total waste of time because in the four years you might spend in college, things have changed so much that the curriculum is totally outdated by the time you graduate. That's what so, I say a lot. Yeah, just get out there and you are and you can learn from the company. Just be good at these, what you would call the softer skills and all that, right? Absolutely. And then you can learn Ab- from a guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder, Tim, how about this then? Um, what is your kind of vision for the company culture or workplace and stuff like that? So, uh, you know, any principles guiding that? At Dunkin', we're getting ready for sunnier days with our Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. A bright and balanced iced coffee with notes of cocoa, tangy sweetness, and toasted nuts. Made to brighten every day a little more. Soak in the sunshine a little more. And fill every moment with a little more, more. Because we aren't just chasing sunsets anymore. We're counting sunrises too. Do more with Dunkin' Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. Brewed for brighter days. Enjoy a medium for $2. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Mama is treating me to breakfast. Yep, let me see your phone. Huh? Look here, I download this McDonald's app because when you buy any bagel sandwich like the steak, egg, and cheese bagel, you get one free. Wait, you just bought that on my phone. That's right. Now that you got McDonald's money, you could treat mama. <laughs> okay, ma, you got it. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Valid through 10 22 at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. App download and registration required. Anything for you as far as your yeah. company? We want to hire people that I could have fun hanging out with outside of work. And I know a lot of companies say that, but we actually do that. And so like, if I just don't get a good vibe from someone, you know, if we're hiring and, you know, we interview a couple of people, if it's like, if I couldn't see myself hanging out with someone after work, I wouldn't want to work with them every day. Cause I, I mean, again, this isn't the right way, but it's our way. This is how we do it. I think life is too short to work with people that you don't enjoy and not just people you don't hate, but people that like life is too short not to be working with people that are a lot of fun. Right. I'm not, I'm not about living here. I'm about thriving. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And so I know maybe it's cliche, maybe it's cheesy, but like with all the people, with, with all the people that we could hire, why would I hire someone that I personally find a little bit annoying? For example, even if they're really good at their job, even if they're excellent at their job, I want to hire someone that's fun to work with. And so first and foremost, we try to hire people that I would actually enjoy hanging out with because often when we do team retreats, we're a totally remote company. So all of us work from home. Um, but when we hang out, like, and we do some team retreats some more, I want to be able to go hang out with the team and like look forward to it because we all are actually friends in yeah, real right. life. And that's true. I mean, pretty much everyone on the team now, I could say gets along to the point that we're like friends or if we want to go hang out for a weekend at a company event, like no one's like dreading it. It's like, oh, I don't want to have to go be with my coworkers. Like, we all get along really well, and we all have a lot of interests. Um, 
in common too. So I just hire like-minded people that I could see myself getting along with. One thing that we did early on too, because I was young, we were not investor funded with, you know, uh, venture capital or anything like that. And so early on, we didn't have a lot of money to pay employees, you know, cause it'd be like, cool. I made, you know, uh, let's say four more sales early on of realtors that signed up and each of them are paying us, you know, like 1500 bucks a month. So I just brought in an extra $6,000 a month of recurring, but now I need to hire another employee. So boom, all that money goes out the window to hiring an employee. So as like revenue is growing, it doesn't necessarily always mean that profit was growing in the early days. Right. And so now we have really healthy profit margins because we've reached the level of scale to where, um, you know, our profit margins are excellent. But uh, in the early days, it wasn't always that way. Right. I mean, there were months where we lost money in the early days. And so because of that, we had to be very efficient with any decisions. And in a company like a you know marketing agency, payroll is your number one expense. Like we don't have a big building or a big lease or anything like that, but payroll is by far a big expense on a monthly basis. And so we had to find ways to pay people as little as possible, but give them other benefits and other things that would make the job interesting and enjoyable um, so that we could still hire good people, but not pay them a lot of money early on. Right. And so we like often we started some people at like $30,000 a year, you know, because we were just hiring kids in college that we're like, yeah, cool. That sounds like a fun company. I'll take this job and, you know, maybe it'll leapfrog something cooler. And now some of those people who started working for next to nothing, I mean, our first employee we ever hired was $500 a month is what I was paying him. I was like, this is what I can afford to pay you. Do you want to join my fledgling company? You know, (laughs) and he did. And now he's the GM of the entire company and makes over a hundred thousand dollars a year. He works his way from five, from 500 bucks a month to over a hundred thousand dollars a year salary. And he runs the whole thing. And so also doesn't have a college degree. And so, Early on, we didn't have money, though. As you can see, I was paying people $500 a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had to figure out ways to make the culture fun and cool so that we could still attract people without bribing them with more money, essentially, because we didn't have the money to bribe them with. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we give lots of PTO. That's 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 one thing that we do. If we've, we've set up our business in such a way that we actually give our employees 40 days of PTO a year. And so every quarter, they can take 10 days off of paid time off. So every quarter they can essentially take two weeks off if they wanted to. A lot of them don't even use all that time because, you know, they just don't. But every quarter, if they wanted to, they can take two weeks off of pay time, which is like what a lot of companies might give you for an entire year. Yeah. If, and now if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And so now the company is successful enough to where, you know, we also offer like, uh, you know, healthcare benefits and things like that in a normal stack of benefits. But before it was like nothing. And it was like, well, let's just try to give a ton of PTO and work-life balance and flexibility and the ability to work remotely and a fun corporate culture and things like that. And now as we've grown, it's one of those things where like, well, the more money you make, you know, profit is a noble goal because profit allows you to pay people more and do cooler things. Like if, if you notice all those lists you see of like, oh, the best place is to work, they could be easily mistaken for just the companies that have the most profit. You know, you look at like Apple, Google, Facebook, all these companies that are always on those lists of, Oh, Apple and, you know, Google have nap pods and employee cafeterias and massages at work and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, that's because those companies are making shit tons of profit. Mm-hmm. Right. So being a best place to work, is almost just like a euphemism these days for the companies that have the most money. So I think profit is a very noble goal. Making money is noble. It's morally a good thing. And I've certainly been able to raise my employees, you know, paychecks and benefits and what we're able to pay them because our company is making more money now. 
And so uh, that's always obviously been the goal. And I've never been ashamed to say that I want to make a lot of money. You know, I think profit is just the accounting term for leaving the world better than you found it. So of course I want to make a ton of money because it means in some small way with the clients that we've been able to work with, like we made their lives better. I mean, just today I actually recorded a podcast episode with one of our clients for our company's podcast. Mm -hmm. And this is a single mom with three daughters at home. And uh, when she started working with us as a realtor, she was making about $75,000 a year. And now uh, this year after working with us, she's going to make $215,000. So we added nearly $150,000 to her income working with us. And now she can provide for, you know, her daughters. She can save money for retirement. She can put money away for their college. She can send them to a private school if she wants to. She's much more financially stable, obviously making that amount of money. And like that feels really, really good that we've made that we've made her life better. And so it's, it's, it's always interesting to me when you talk about helping other people make more money, how that's all, um, you know, that's, that's romanticized and that's like, Oh, great. You did such a good thing helping the single mom make way more money. But when you talk about yourself making more money, that's some of that's bad and selfish, right? Somehow moral for other people to do well and not moral for you. So I've always been very outspoken about that. And our employees know that, that like this company doesn't exist uh, to provide jobs for people, right? It's, right? it's not somehow any morally better that if we have $100,000 to hire an employee with that I hire two employees at $50,000 versus one employee at $100,000. Because you could do that. Now you have twice as many jobs, but the purpose of this business is not to provide jobs for people, no. right? The purpose is to serve our customers and hopefully serve our customers in such a way that it allows us to make as much money as possible. So I've always been very clear on that. I also try to hire people to answer your question. I try to hire people who, who, who agree with that philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's a good lead in here then. I mean, you're an unabashed uh, champion of capitalism. So am I right. And, but that's very unpopular. You just mentioned it's unpopular to talk about yourself making profit. It's okay to help other people give jobs, help them make profits, help other people, but not helping yourself or seeking profit. Um, but I, I think, you know, before we whether ought to decide whether something's popular or not, we have to know what we're talking about. So when you do talk about capitalism, what are you talking about? What is capitalism? I mean, there's obviously many ways that you could define capitalism, but to me, it's just freedom. When you're free to buy and sell with other people without any politician having to grant you permission, right? Like capitalism is just the word we use to describe freedom when we're talking about the economy, right? And so obviously there's some economies that are going to be more capitalist than others because it certainly exists on a spectrum, right? There's no binary black and white. This is a capitalist country and this is not, right? Every not country is going to have elements of capitalism and elements of uh, of a statism or a political control or whatever you want to call it, you know, like a totalitarian state, whatever, right? Socialism, whatever word you want to use. Um, but to the degree that a country is more capitalist, it just means that that the citizens of that country's economy are more free, right? So I would just say it's capitalism is just the word we use to describe freedom when we're talking in an economic context. Certainly, so it's, it's weird. To, it's, it's it's weird to me that anyone is ever against capitalism. It's like you're against freedom because no one's against freedom, right? It's like, no well, one's against freedom. For freedom. And that, like and that's as it then. So what do people think it is then, Tim? Yeah, I think. When most people think of capitalism, they have this like cartoonish stereotype of like the monopoly man, big evil banks, 
hoarding money and like foreclosing on a widow who can't afford to make her payments anymore or something like that. Right. And so much of what people think is capitalism is crony capitalism or it's corporatism where it's like politicians bailing out companies that didn't make profit. And then they say, Oh, we're too big to fail. So they get bailouts from taxpayer dollars, but that's, that's not capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Capitalism is if your company can't survive, you go out of business. And so often I think almost every single attack against capitalism, this is something I really believe, almost any attack against capitalism is a straw man argument. You're attacking something that's not actually capitalism. Something and more in the various, or, yeah, or like you're, 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 yeah, you're basically attacking corporatism or crony capitalism, something that's not really capitalism. Like when people say, well, you know, the, the banks, you know, they have uh, capitalism on the way up and socialism on the way down. Like they keep all the profits when times are good and then they get bailed out when things don't go well. I'm like, well, yeah, that's not capitalism, right? right. That's like that's like me saying that, uh, you know, a low-carb diet doesn't work because I went on a low-carb diet and I was eating donuts every day and this proves that the low-carb diet doesn't work. It's like, well, you weren't following a low-carb diet. So how could you say a low-carb diet doesn't work if you weren't actually following it's the same thing right so most most people's attacks against capitalism are really they're attacking the 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 features of the economy that ironically are the opposite of capitalism i see all right let me try this one on you tim this is from your own facebook i you i know you're you're the king of those uh, sharing some kind of post on facebook i used to love following those when i was uh spending more time on facebook i've been off for quite a while now um i'm gonna give you one of those and ask you to uh maybe elaborate here um, the, you said the evolution of the word nobility proves that capitalism has changed the world. The root word is the Latin nobilis, which meant highborn. Either you were born a noble or you were not. There was no in-between. Historically, nobility had nothing to do with your actual accomplishments. It was a matter of fate. You were born into a story that was already written. Today, the term has evolved to mean anyone who displays moral courage. Most of us intuitively reject any language that implies some people are inherently born superior to other people. It wasn't always this way. We have capitalism to thank for this. Uh, can you explain that? Few people would, would uh, assign the credit to capitalism. What do you mean? I, I mean, yeah, you've well, already what is, indicated. But. What, what, is, what is the only thing that really changed in world history in the last couple hundred years? Capitalism, right? If you look at all of European history, even going back to like pre-European history, thousands and thousands of years before that, there was always social statuses, right? There were kings and queens and then you know, like the peasants and the serfs and the slaves. And there's all these different social strata, essentially, right? Capitalism is what changed that. Because, you know, I said the word nobility is a, it was was originally a social status that was based on who you were born to, right? You're in a royal family or you're not in a royal family. That's binary, right? There's not, it, it doesn't exist on a spectrum how royal you are. Either you were highborn or you weren't, right? Capitalism is the first time we even start talking about the idea of a middle class because countries that allowed free markets to flourish. And again, when we say free markets or the word capitalism, we're just talking about freedom in an economic context, right? Like you can do whatever you want, right? So if you were really, really good at business and you were really good at, you know, seeing the ships coming in with fish and buying low and selling high because you could buy in bulk from some you know, ship coming in and then sell it to all the merchants in town and profit off of the spread. And you were able to help your, let's say, regional economy become more efficient by playing that matchmaker role in the economy. And you could make a bunch of money for the first time. 
you were able to start building respect and advancing socioeconomically because of your actual talent. So capitalism really ushered a meritocracy um, into human civilization where people could become important people and respected people because of how much money they had made because of how successful they were in their job. And so today, like, of course, one of the, one of the definitions of the word nobility is still this classic sense of like the Royal family of England. Like they're the, they're, they're the nobles, right? The nobility, but also we just say, Oh, that was a very noble thing to do. Like it's an adjective that you can use to describe anyone who displays moral courage. Like it was not always that way where, you know, uh, anyone could be worthy of that title. And so like capitalism has shattered all sorts of uh, socioeconomic barriers. I mean, until free markets and the industrial revolution in the 1700s, 1800s, right? I mean, we, we uh, think about India as having a caste system, right? But like every country until the industrial revolution more or less had a caste system, yeah, yeah, right? Where it was like, you're either born wealthy into an important family or you're not. Mm-hmm. And nothing you could do in your life would ever change that because if you're, you know, if your parents' last name was Baker, guess what you were going to be a Baker. Like we still don't realize a lot of English names, uh, uh, last names are actually just the names of occupations. Because if you were, a, if your last, if your parents' last name was Fisher, guess what you're going to be when you grow up, you're going to be a fisherman, right? Baker, Archer, um, uh, Smith, you know, there's tons. That's obviously one of the most common names in America is the last name Smith. It means your parents were probably a blacksmith or some sort of other Smith, right? Uh, that that that's still kind of the remnants of the old world where you were born into a story that was already written and nothing you did mattered because if your parents were a smith, you were going to be chained up to be a blacksmith. And it didn't matter if you wanted to be a businessman or it didn't matter if you wanted to be a poet or a, a musician or whatever, like that's what you were going to do. And it didn't even matter how good you were at it. Like you couldn't advance and make more money because society didn't yet accept that. Capitalism changed that because we kind of all realized that if we allow people that are really, really good to get paid more by people because they're really, really good, it's not really zero sum, right? Like we end up with more stuff, more beautiful music being written, you know, more, you know, expertly crafted, uh, you know, um, home furnishings, whatever it is, right? And so it's okay if some people make more money, if they're better at doing whatever it is that they do than people who don't make as much money. And so I really think, that we have free markets and capitalism to thank for not just obviously the material standard of living that we have, but also in a deeper sense um, at an emotional or a socioeconomic level, like meritocracy itself is not an accident, right? Like that was not predestined that we had any sense of meritocracy in modern society. Cause there's still some countries around the world that don't have that. Yeah, that's right. Right. Like that was not preordained that we were marching towards meritocracy as human civilization because you can go back as far as we have records for and pretty much everything was the same until about 1700, 1800. There was virtually no change in how societies were organized and uh, social mobility, right? That would be the term that economists use. There was pretty much zero change in social mobility for millennia until capitalism and free markets burst on the scene. 
Uh, well, I'd love to hear somebody else say it. And you, you mentioned nobility being, uh, you know, that's it means you did something noble. That's something a moral, a moral act. And then, as far as our nobility or our royalty, people we celebrate, it is people who have achieved something. So we might be like, you know, say, oh my God, look at Sidney Crosby. I mean, I don't know if you follow hockey at all or whatever. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Or 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 if a business yep, person. Minnesota. So. Ah, boy. Yeah. Um, or if it's, uh, you know, there's Steve Jobs come to our town. That's a big event. Like, look at that. Nobody says like, hey, Timmy, look, it's the Duke of Springfield or, you know, like we, that, that idea to people now doesn't mean anything. And that's what you were it's saying. Almost, it's in almost your, silly. Yeah, it's silly. It sounds ridiculous. If some dude was trying to say I'm the Earl of something, we would what's wrong with that guy. Right. People would be offended by that and think that, you know, he's, he's arrogant, something wrong with him. But so I, I feel it. I just wonder why people can't get it and maybe uh, a question maybe a, a final one on this capitalism then what are the biggest challenges in being a champion of capitalism and, and how does a marketing expert address those <laughs> yeah i think i think we have to learn how to make moral arguments because one thing that you know anyone who's spent their life in the academy right in academia like free market economics is not controversial that's what i think a lot of people don't understand like in actual academic circles, it's not debated anymore, even amongst the most liberal left-wing economists of the world, right? It's not even debated that free markets are more prosperous than countries that don't have free markets. And so if you turn on like MSNBC or whatever the left-wing news media is in whatever country you're in, right, you might see some people saying, oh, these free market economics don't work anymore. But like amongst actual economists – it's not controversial. It's not even up for debate anymore. Free market economies produce more prosperity than countries that don't have free market economies, right? And keep in mind, this exists on a spectrum. So there is such a thing as countries that are maybe slightly less free market, countries that are more free market. Even at an industry level, sometimes there's industries within a country where this industry is more free market than that one is, right? Yeah, right. So, But it, it is objectively fair to say that Economists don't disagree on that. There's a lot of things that economists might have theories on or disagree depending on your school of thought, but like all economists agree that like global free trade is a good thing and that the more free a country's economy is, like the better off their people will be over the long term. That is not a controversial thing to say anymore, right? Yeah. But a lot of us don't realize that. And so at Duncan, we're getting ready for sunnier days with our Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. A bright and balanced iced coffee with notes of cocoa, tangy sweetness, and toasted nuts. Made to brighten every day a little more. Soak in the sunshine a little more. And fill every moment with a little more, more. Because we aren't just chasing sunsets anymore. We're counting sunrises too. Do more with Duncan's Sunrise Batch Iced Coffee. Brewed for brighter days. Enjoy a medium for $2. America runs on Duncan. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. So we still make economic or statistical arguments for capitalism. Like we'll talk about, well, you know, this country's GDP was this when they adopted and here's their unemployment rate or here's their immediate income or, you know, this is their country's return on capital or, you know, all these like econometric statistics that no one cares about. Right. We need to learn to make moral arguments for capitalism because progressives that are hell bent on destroying free markets and free and open societies, they make moral arguments against capitalism. And I think their moral arguments are total horseshit, to be clear. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. they'll say that look at this person, uh, you know, they're uh 
they don't have money for healthcare and they found out that they have cancer and because the evil capitalist system, health insurance is too expensive. And like, there's so many things wrong. There's so many things wrong with what I just said that, that I, don't, I don't even know where to begin from the fact that the healthcare system is not free market at all. There's all sorts of mandated things that have to be covered in health insurance policies in a true free market. I honestly think that like health insurance in America would cost like, a hundred bucks a month, maybe 200 bucks a month for like a full blown amazing policy. Cause that's what I, you know, that's how much it costs me to insure my half million dollar house mm-hmm. is a couple hundred bucks a month, you know, and there's a much greater likelihood that that house will be burned in a fire or a victim of a, you know, natural disaster or something than that statistically I'm going to be in a horrific car wreck or die of cancer anytime soon. Or need half a million dollars of healthcare. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so from a, just a basic mathematical actuarial perspective, if that insurance company can profitably insure, you know, my house, they should be able to insure me for even cheaper than that. Cause I'm young and healthy. Right. And so if you just think about it for a second, that can't possibly be a free market if healthcare is that expensive that average people can't afford it. Cause like newsflash companies, insurance companies want to make money and they make money by having more people insured. And so if they could find a way to profitably insure people, they would want to do that. Right. So anyways, not to go on a tangent, but like that example I described of someone complaining that, Oh, the health insurance bankrupts people, that's not a free market. That's what I would argue is everything about that situation. That is super unfortunate is because we don't have a free market, but progressives are very effective at using sob stories like that to make people angry at capitalism. And in response, what most defenders of free markets and defenders of capitalism say is like, well, uh, that, that, that may be true, but uh, we make more money as a whole and we have more prosperity and we live longer. And they kind of just like dodge the question and they throw out some statistics. It's like, well, you can't counter an emotionally compelling story with GDP stats. No, <laughs> that's not going to win any arguments. It doesn't sound very sexy. No, like Hitler did not give econometric statistics of, you know, why he thought Jews were terrible people or why Jews were a net negative on the economy. He didn't make fancy graphs and use those in his speeches. He convinced millions of people of a horrible lie about Jewish people by purely emotional arguments that had no basis in reality whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So even though they weren't true, emotional arguments are more powerful because the human brain is wired to understand story and emotion, not necessarily rational arguments, mm-hmm. right? And so when our enemies are using emotional mar- arguments, we might think that the correct thing to do is, well, I'm going to counter that with facts and logic, right? It's like, well, you'll lose the argument then. Yeah. And so you have to counter it with equally as powerful emotional arguments, but emotional arguments arguing for the right way that reality actually is. And so when we think about capitalism, I like telling these stories of, well, someone came here, you know, from some impoverished country where they made, you know, $10 a day, and now they make $10 an hour at an entry-level job. That's amazing. Like, so when you see an immigrant getting a job at McDonald's and it's paying $10 an hour or whatever, you might make an emotional argument of, wow, they're oppressing her only paying $10 an hour. That's not a living wage. Well, you know, it's not a living wage making $10 a day in her home country. That's actually a miracle. And she's grateful for that job. And who knows, maybe in five years, she's an assistant manager. She's the manager of that store. You know, it's a really cool story. My dad. Yeah. Broke. That is a cool story. 
being in a trailer park in his 30s, dropped out of high school, and now he's a multimillionaire. That story doesn't really happen in other countries. It doesn't happen right? anywhere in history in any of the countries, yeah. No, at, at all. I mean, we we live longer in the United States. Our literacy rates are higher. We don't have, you know, the high death rates of our newborns like humans had for pretty much all of uh, – all of history, like no one in the United States is actually starving to death. Like you hear progressives talk to, oh, kids don't have food. It's like, no, they don't, right? Yeah. Like if you skip a meal a day, it doesn't mean you're starving to death. Like using the word starving or lack of food, like we should use those words to talk about like Africa, right? But in the United States, there is so much food and prosperity and shelter. It is a modern miracle. Like there are so many things right with the world and we need to tell those stories in an emotional way. So I always get fired up hearing socioeconomic success stories, whether it's my yes. dad, whether it's, you know, this single mom, for example, who is a realtor who hired Platform and we added almost $150,000 to her family's income. And she's a single mom with three daughters that changes her life. That's a capitalism success story, right? So anytime that someone tries to smear capitalism with a purely you know, bullshit, emotional, negative story, I can counter a 10 positive stories that are actually based in reality and not misrepresenting the facts or making a straw man argument. Right. You know, we couldn't do this in Africa or we couldn't do this in communist China who doesn't have free markets, you know, and the, the state tries to control and regulate everything. And so okay. to answer your question, when people make emotional arguments, we need to counter their emotional arguments with better emotional arguments yeah not statistical arguments right i'm hearing you tim and i could talk about this thing all day but i want to get on to get on to another one maybe this might help us out maybe this will tell a couple stories here if we because i think your trip to the midwest when you were sharing it on facebook and really a lot of your posts i was really loving that so i wonder if you wouldn't uh give us a bit of that um you went to the midwest was it in october took a trip oh yeah i just yeah i just kind of drove drove yeah, through you Really, the whole United States, yeah. Yeah. From Minnesota out, out to the Northeast, and yep. Okay, this was you and your wife Bella, just you two. Yep. You, just you two. Yep. Um, can you give us just the, the quick details of it? Like, you, you rent a car. How long were you going to go for? Where were you? What did you have planned out? Or were you just heading out? And I mean, you must have. What was your agenda? Uh, we really just wanted to drive out. Uh, you know, we were we were in Minnesota, and we wanted to drive out to the Northeast and see the fall colors. I mean, just see the foliage in you know Vermont, Maine. Yeah. And then we were going to make our way back to Florida where we live. So basically drive from Minnesota out to like Maine and then drive south from there. And I don't know, take two, two or three weeks to make the drive and kind of didn't have an agenda other than we wanted to drive some pretty roads and, you know. Okay, right. So um, what were some of your general impressions along the way? And you were sharing some of them on Facebook, I recall. But what were some of your general impressions? Yeah, you know, things or, were or what pretty, did you learn? Uh, yeah. Things were pretty, things were pretty uneventful until we got to New York mm -hmm. um, and they were all locked down because of COVID. We didn't realize this. So I had made a hotel reservation at a Hilton in New York and we got there and they wouldn't let us into our room. Uh, you know, I was just shocked. I was like, what? I have a reserved paid for reservation here. You're like, what do you mean you won't let me in your room or uh, in my room? And he's like, well, you're traveling from a non-approved state. And I'm like, what, what does that even mean? Like, I've never heard that before. Like, what is this? Like the Soviet union, a non-approved state, you know? Yeah. And 
he's like, well, these are the states that, you know, you can be from. It's like basically all these like super progressive northeastern states that all made a pact together to try to lock down COVID that they won't allow any travelers in. And I'm kind of like just beside myself, like, well, I'm standing here right now. And I've been in line here for 20 minutes and I'm not waiting in line to see if I can get a hotel room. I already have a paid for confirmed reservation. They wouldn't let us in our hotel room. And he said, you sorry, I can't let you in here. You're not from an approved state. And I was like, well, there's no hotels anywhere around here that have vacancy because it's the Northeast peak fall colors. Like all the hotels are sold out. And I, and I, I knew this because I'd already checked. There's literally not a hotel within a hundred miles that had a room. And this is already like 10 30 PM. Yeah. And so I was like, if you don't let me in this room that I've already confirmed, like I will be sleeping in my truck in your parking garage. And my wife is right there next to me. He's like, I'm sorry, sir. I, I, I can't let you in. You're a danger to everyone here. He literally said you're a danger to everyone here. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I was like, sir, just let me go to my room. I'm not going to go to the bar. I'm not going to talk with people. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go to my room. I'm going to sleep. And then I'll leave in the morning. I'm not going to see anyone. Just let me go. All I want is I'm paying for a bed. Right. Mm-hmm. And he just like couldn't be a human about it and let me go to my hotel room. So instead, we literally slept in my truck overnight, and then we just said, "Fuck it, I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to put up with this in all these other states that apparently have similar rules." Whether it was like you know Vermont, Maine, all these northeastern states, and so Bella and I just like headed south that morning and drove through West Virginia and decided, well, I guess we'll just see the fall colors in West Virginia. And said, we're going back to Florida. Like, I want to spend my money in states that actually want it and appreciate our tourism dollars, you know, because these other states, like, were so afraid of COVID that they would make, you know, someone sleep in their truck overnight, which is actually like, mm-hmm. dangerous, right? So, right. like, ironically, not you're promoting health. Yeah. yeah, like, I mean, ironically, you're talking about danger when you're making me sleep in my truck overnight in, like, a New York parking lot. Like, <laughs> I was, I was incredibly mad. Right. And so we went back to Florida and this whole time I've been living in freedom in Florida because Florida doesn't have all the COVID lockdowns that the Mm -hmm. other states have had. So this was all just shocking to me that, yeah, that someone would do that. And that was honestly like one of the first times in my life that I experienced, like, this is what it would be to live in a totalitarian state Mm -hmm. where I don't have someone's permission to even go into a hotel room I already booked and paid for. Mm -hmm. It was a really weird experience, like emotionally. Yeah, I recall that story specifically too. Yeah, and uh, I've heard, I've actually, you know, heard a lot worse. But that is, yeah, right, a very right, shocking right. story. Uh, Tim, how about this then? Why should someone to to wrap up that aspect? Why should someone take a trip like that? I think that, I think that America is way too big of a country and way too diverse of a country. Not, not diverse racially. Um, Because that's often, you know, when people use the word diverse, it's almost shorthand for like racial diversity, but there's all sorts of diversity, right? There's the diversity of the topography. There's the diversity of, you know, culturally the different regions like Appalachia is like its own country compared to the Midwest, compared to the Mountain West, compared to California, compared to Texas, compared to the South. I mean, even like the the states that made up the Confederacy are very, very culturally different than Texas, which technically is in the South and technically was part of the Confederacy. But Texas has its own flavor. Florida has its own cultural flavor. Um, you know, like the, uh, the uh, Midwest does because, you know, lots of Germans settled the Dakotas and in Minnesota, there's lots of Norwegians and different people, you know, settled in Michigan. A lot of French people settled in Michigan, which is why there's still a lot of French sounding names there. And so each, each uh, each immigrant group kind of left their own cultural mark, you could say, on different areas of the United States, and they still function as very different 
different cultures today. And so I think it's a shame when I hear young American kids, they're like, oh, I'm going to go backpack Europe. I can't wait to travel the world. And it's like, dude, you haven't even been to Wyoming. You haven't even been to Colorado. You haven't even been to Alaska. You haven't even been to, you know, northern Arizona. You haven't been to West Texas. You haven't seen Florida. Like, why would you want to go backpack Europe when you haven't even seen 95% of how crazy beautiful the United States is? Now, obviously, I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to. If you want to go backpack Europe, by all means, rock on. But it's really weird to me that a lot of Americans haven't even seen all 50 states in their own country and they just so badly want to go see the rest of the world. When I've, I've met people from other countries mm-hmm. that have seen more of the United States than some of my friends have because they yep. come here and they travel around and see different states and a lot of Americans haven't even. So it's like, you know, if you've never driven through South Dakota, Western South Dakota is absolutely gorgeous. Like the Black Hills and mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore and, you know, you head over into Montana's right there. Wyoming's right there. Idaho, um, Alaska is beautiful. If you've never seen a grizzly bear, holy cow, they're huge. It looks like nothing you've mm-hmm. ever seen in your life. If you've seen how big a grizzly is to a normal bear, um, you know, just the the rock formations and everything in Arizona and how vast the West Texas, you know, um, you know, plains are. And then you get to Florida and it's like this tropical climate. And then the, you know, the wooded rolling hills and forests of the Carolinas and Georgia, um, and you know, the Shenandoah is in Virginia. I mean, I could go on and on. It's like the United States is this big, beautiful, epic place. And I think it's a shame when people don't really experience it because the more you travel to, you get more of an appreciation for federalism, I think, because you realize how diverse the United States actually is culturally and therefore politically, because politics is always downstream from culture. And so mm-hmm. if you have especially driven, not, not flown around, but if you've driven around the United States, so you've experienced, for example, how big and vast and empty and sparsely populated a state like Wyoming is. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there, right? It's a bunch of cowboys and livestock and, you know, natural resource extraction, oil and coal and things like that. Mm-hmm. When you see how sparse it is or Montana, right? Now, even how different eastern Montana is, which is still like the Great Plains to western Montana, which is where there's, you know, the Rocky Mountains and Bozeman and big sky and all that. Right. Yeah. And you realize like, it is insane that a bunch of lawyers thousands of miles away in Washington, DC could pass federal laws that tell these people how to live in Alaska or Montana or what. And you realize how vast the United States is. You'll actually appreciate more the political genius of federalism and decentralization about why a bunch of people thousands of miles away shouldn't be able to regulate and tell these people how to live. But if you've never left your hometown or your home state, I think having a strong central, sometimes uh, tyrannical government might make more logical sense to you because you actually don't realize at an experiential level how vast and culturally diverse the United States really is. If you actually have driven around the United States, and I have to go here in a second, I actually have to hop on another another interview here. But All right, man. If, you've driven, if you've driven around the United States, this is the last thing I'll say, you would realize that Saying the United States should have a strong central government, like a strong federal government, right? Like, so this is going back to like the Federalist Papers, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that the United States should have a strong central government is just as absurd as saying all of Europe should consolidate under the EU and have one European government. Well, imagine that an idea be, like that. That would be insane because of how different German people are and their belief systems and their preferences 
from how different the French people are with their belief systems and their preferences and how different they are from the Scandinavians and the Southern Europeans and, you know, the Eastern Europeans. And all of them have different philosophies and different ways that they live their life. None of them are necessarily better or worse, but they're, they're different, right? And so the idea that you could have all of these people smashed under one centralized government that'll standardize everything and tell them how to live, it could only end in disaster, right? And that's what we're essentially moving towards in the U.S. is all these different groups of people that have wildly different um, attitudes and personal preferences when it comes to politics. Some people want bigger government. Some people want less. Some people are socially liberal. Some people are socially conservative. Some people are atheists. Some people are deeply religious. I mean, there's all sorts of differences. To think that the whole U.S. could be ruled under one federal government becomes very absurd, if you've actually traveled the U.S. and seen how culturally diverse it is. So I challenge people, drive the U.S., take a really long road trip, and not only will you enjoy yourself because it's big and beautiful, but you'll actually learn a lot about politics um, throughout that trip because because of the experience. Well, that's very interesting you say that, Tim. People seem to get offended by the idea of the U.S. telling other people with other cultures how to live and all that, but yet there's so many diverse, diverse cultures and you're trying to tell you know, with them how to live, as, as you put it. Um, well, geez, Tim, I guess you, you said you got to go, so we will wrap it here. Um, I guess just before you do, where should people go if they want to learn more about you and anything that you want to direct them to? You know, I'm actually launching a podcast and a brand right now. The website's not up yet, but pretty soon it'll be Happy Capitalist or The the Happy Capitalist. So if you go on Google and search for The Happy Capitalist, that'll be that'll be the new brand. All right. How much do I like the sound of that? All right, Tim. Well, I very much appreciate it. Um, to everybody else, just before he gets off here, um, please share this interview. If you uh, you know that you've got somebody who would love to hear this, share it with that person. Um, you can ask questions uh, where you're consuming now, or you can go to the Mr. Brightside Facebook page, facebook.com slash matthewbolton.ca. And then, of course, go see Tim's Happy Capitalist uh, podcast. Uh, when should we expect that, you say, Tim? Literally within the next month. So maybe even before this episode is out, we'll have the website live and everything. So, yep. Right on, buddy. Okay, well, I very much appreciate it, Tim. Just all-star, you know, coming right out here and giving giving, uh, giving us your A-game. I appreciate it. Uh, happy New Year to you and Bella, and all the best in the new year, buddy. Awesome. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks. Everybody else, I'll see you guys next time. By the way, how did my shirt? See my shirt? boy. Hey, well, I got brand it. I, all right. Is that brand new? Yeah, brand new Christmas gift from the wife. So, yeah, pretty stoked about that. Mr. Brightside, your time out to refresh, refuel, and refocus your mind and energy toward building an optimistic framework for flourishing. Life is good. It's up to you to choose the bright side. 